Welcome to the Fire and Earth Podcast with your hosts, Jason Mefford and Kathy Groover. Fire and Earth, giving you the keys to unlock your limitless potential. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Fire and Earth Podcast. I'm your co-host, Kathy Groover. And I'm Jason Mefford. And today we have Christine Forner with us. So, Christine, welcome. Welcome. We're, uh, we're an international podcast today, Canada and the U.S. So, Christine, just maybe start off, just tell us a little bit about yourself so the listeners kind of get to know who you are, and then we'll just jump into our discussion. Sure. I'm, I am a, I'm a clinical uh, social worker up in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Um, I have been working with complex trauma and complex traumatic cases and people who've had a lot of basically hurts. Uh, for over 20 years now, I'm the immediate past president of the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation. Um, I've written several articles and written a book on uh, the intersection between dissociation and mindfulness. And as far as I can tell, um, I, I started writing about this in 2000 and about uh, seven, eight, nine. I started studying it when I was going to school. And um, I'm one of the very few people who really dive into the world of dissociation and the world of mindfulness and compare them. And that's me. And that's what I do. Mm, we're going to have a great discussion today. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so excited. Okay. So I was a psych minor. I was absolutely obsessed with abnormal psychology. I swore if I ever went back to school, I would do psychology, something in the abnormal psychology realm. Uh, didn't go that route. But when I worked for a production company down in Los Angeles, we did a four-part series for Discovery Health Network on mental illness. So one of them was depression, anxiety, and bipolar. Uh, I'm sorry, depression, manic, uh, yeah, depression and bipolar. One was anxiety. Uh, one was DID. Uh, and the other was autism. So I got to, and this was multiple personality disorder back then, they didn't call it DID yet. And so I got to actually interview patients who were dissociating and there was one woman who had integrated all of her personalities uh, and she could pull them forward so I literally sat there with her and got to watch her switch through her basically her slide deck of aspects of herself yeah absolutely fascinating it was so interesting to watch and yeah I recently just heard uh, someone talk about mindfulness and how harmful it was and how mindfulness was the new the new, um, what they say, the new weapon of commercialism. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> I'm like, so I, I have so many questions for you. Um, and then how does COVID fit into all this is the other question. So, okay. Yeah. So start peeling so, it back for us. <laughs> so like a, a couple things to note, um, dissociation is actually a neurobiological biomechanical response inside every single human being. Yep. Everybody's familiar with the fight and the flight. This is the freeze. This is the breaks to the fight flight gas. Mm -hmm. So really the conditions of what creates someone who ends up with a dissociative disorder, whether it's a depersonalization, derealization disorder or an unspecified or otherwise specified, which is sort of a hodgepodge, don't fit here, don't fit there, which is actually the most common type of dissociative disorder, all the way up to dissociative identity disorder and when you understand sort of the biomechanics of, of what is happening inside a human being when they freeze, dissociative identity disorder actually makes a lot of common sense. Oh. Um, I think what happens is that assumptions are made, 
I think that also what happens is that a lot of people who were talking about schizophrenia in the early days and voice hearing in the early days, and we're talking about like a hundred years ago, these are people who, honestly, they were men, aristocratic men, nobility, who were um, able to go to school, who were able to study, who were able to be academics, who were able to have these careers. These certainly weren't people of lower classes. These weren't people of color. These weren't people, uh, they weren't women. And so they, they, they sort of constructed what they deemed to be correct and accurate. But we have to note that these are also probably people who had huge attachment disorders themselves. These are probably because they were they were taken the, the aristocratic men were taken out of the homes, put into schools at very early ages, raised by nannies, not raised by their parents, mm-hmm. and expected to be on their own and hundred percent independent. That's not goes with human nature, but they normalized that way of being right. instead of normalizing what is actually more aligned with Homo sapien and and our neurobiology and our uh, sensory and affective information. So throughout all the years, um, there's there's been a lot of misunderstandings and misnomers that are still taught today as fact, and they're not actually true. So when we work with people with multiplicity, really what it is, a way of looking at it is it, it when the body is confronted or affronted with anything that is beyond its capability to manage. So it's the central nervous system that manages everything. And when that that central nervous system is beyond its means, that means that that body is now traumatized or that's that's sort of what trauma kind of means is that that body has gone beyond its capacity to make itself okay again. It, 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 so we, in the, the world of trauma, we talk about regulation and dysregulation. Mm-hmm. Regulation is when the, sup- the central nervous system is copacetic and happy. When we're dysregulated, it's starting to become unhappy. When it moves beyond its capacity, it then moves into its emergency systems. And it goes further and further and further back in the brain that these, these mechanisms are coming from. And the further and further back they go, the deeper they are, the more unconscious they are, the more they are through a felt experience, a sensory experience, the more it hurts, the more it's frightening, the more it's painful. And the more that we go back, the more danger we are in. And so if you take a look at, if if you sort of consider predation where I'm pretty sure humans were like the junk food of Africa way back when, (laughs) because we really are an animal or a creature that's unable to protect itself on its own. We don't have the claws, we don't have the teeth, we don't have the muscles. What we have is a really big social brain. And that's what makes humans really, really sort of different. And dissociation is what that body does when it's unable to run or unable to get to safety or move away from safety or hide from danger. It's the shutting off. And we actually know that the brain kind of goes and totally switches when we move into a dissociative state. The other thing that happens is the body will excrete natural opioids and cannabinoids. So heroin-like substances, marijuana-like substances are excreted into the body to anesthetize and numb things out. We also know that the thalamus scatters information and the insula stops working. So all the information that's going up to the brain is being stopped and or separated on purpose. And that from that separation, if this happens early enough and often enough, then they develop bits and pieces of a whole that everybody assumes is a whole. 
but it, they're, they're never a full um, part of a human being that's capable of regulating oneself because if they were, they would, because regulation is like breathing for us. So these are defense mechanisms that get stuck. They get frozen because they go beyond their capacity. And if we are beyond our capacity, we do not grow, we do not develop, we do not mature. We hold still until the danger has passed. And for a lot of these folks, the danger is there forever. Well, and, and so maybe because I know you you talked about both mindfulness and kind of this disassociation, right? So maybe kind of kind of talk a little bit about that. I think I think that's you know you you just talked about the disassociation, kind of how it happens, why it happens, that freeze kind of part, right? Yeah. So how does that tie in with mindfulness and especially kind of that that comment that Kathy you know saw yeah. you know yeah, about yeah. about mindfulness being kind of that commercialization stuff how does it fit together how do you kind of work with well, that well for some reason and, and i and i you know it's sort of a mystery to us who are in the field of dissociation dissociation really gets picked on the way no other mental concern gets picked on mm -hmm. um, i i suspect it's because we do know uh, there is so much strong evidence that um, supports that this is a response to terrible childhoods. This is a response to childhood torture. This is a response to children who are simply left alone. Uh, it can be an, an inactive or a, a passive form of, of violence, which is neglect, mm -hmm. versus an active form of violence, which is the hitting. And it also talks about sexual abuse. Yep. And, you know, a, there's a lot of um, discussion, like right now, the Me Too movement is, is going and the uh, time is up and enough is enough. And, but they still don't incorporate incest in these, in these things. They still don't incorporate children who've been sex trafficked. And, and those are the most common types of sexual assaults. Is that it's happening when people are young and it's happening in the home. Um, the False Memory Syndrome Foundation, which is now no longer, is an example of the, the extreme lengths people will go to try and hide this stuff and cover this stuff up. Because mm -hmm. we now know because it, it's gone defunct. It doesn't actually exist anymore because there was no support for it. There's no scientific evidence to support that um, false memories actually exist, that therapists can induce these unless the therapist does a lot of bad things for a really long time. So you need to have the abuse as the element, not just asking because this is a sensory experience. This is a felt feeling experience. And it's one of those things you've either had this experience or you had not, you can't kind of make up something you've never experienced before. So what happens with, with dissociation is that we're talking about people who were hurt as infants and children and the brain structure when people move into fight flight, this front brain, the brain, the thinking brain, um, it, it gets actually instructed to turn off. I don't know if you've ever been in a moment where you've been scared or somebody's getting upset with you and you just can't talk back. That's that broker's area going off. It's trying to keep you quiet. It's trying to make sure that the predator doesn't hear you. When we move into fight flight, which is our active defenses, which, which um, want and like movement to, in order to get safe or to, to move from danger. When, when you have somebody who's moving into those active states of defenses, their front brain actually gets turned off. And with mindfulness, even just with simple breath, mindfulness starts to turn on brain structures that are aware, that are designed to know. These brain structures are, they're, they're actually 
really very similar to people who are securely attached, means people who've grown up in pretty decent neighborhood and in pretty very, very good homes um, will use the same brain structures that are used in mindfulness. So there's like basically nine functions that these mindful brain structures do. And one of them is regulating the body, regulating fear, regulating emotions. So not only can you have them, but you can use them with intelligence. You can grieve with intelligence. You can experience vulnerability with tolerance, which is actually a pretty hard skill to learn. And it actually takes about 25 years for people who are raised in safe environments to be able to manage those intense emotions that we can have as a species. Um, it, it, they're brain structures that are in charge of attunement. So being able to hone in and feel what other people feel. Empathy is the reverse where it comes back and we sort of feel what other people feel mm -hmm. so that we know what each other are supposed to feel. This actually is, is one of our safety guards to not hurting other people because mm -hmm. we have brain structures that are designed to literally feel what other people feel. It's a brain structure that's in design for taking a mental pause. So it's the brain structure that goes, is this really what's going on or is this something mm -hmm. else? It's the brain structure that's that can update procedural files. So whatever was scary at two no longer is supposed to be scary at 32 or 42. So two feet of water at two is terrifying. If that doesn't get updated, then two yeah. feet of water will stay terrifying your whole life. But if it gets updated, you grow into understanding that it doesn't hurt you anymore. So the, that, the front brain structure is highly relational, highly social, and it's designed to understand intuition and insight and um, instinct. So it's the brain structure, it's up here way at the front, that is designed to talk to that back brain in a different way than our thinking brain works. So our thinking brain, which is about 5% of the brain structure, which isn't very much. So this, this notion of mind over matter is a little bit of a misnomer too. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you have a brain structure that, that is designed to put context and meaning, but that context and meaning is different than the brain structure of the mindfulness. Mindfulness really seems to be regulating ourselves and designed to regulate other people and designed to have this co-regulation. When we are traumatized and move into uh, fight flight, this brain structure turns off. But when we move into freeze, this brain structure becomes hyper aroused. So they become hypersensitive to their pain and suffering. So when we introduce mindfulness, or we introduce meditation. It's like it, it can be the equivalent of like not turning on a dimmer switch, which fight and flight does. This one's turning on a bright light in a dark room. And it's just like, wow. And you have a group of people who instead of regulating, they use their parts to manage life or they use, they, they switch from state to state without, like they don't have the agency. And that, that's really one of the key factors with dissociation is that don't have self agency. This is an autonomic system running the, running the system. So the woman that you were speaking of, um, we would classify that not necessarily as integration, but she's learned how to have agency over her different parts. Integration is when everything is on the same page at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a personal choice. Like, yeah. like it's, it's not a therapist's choice or anybody else's business to help somebody lives their life, honestly, if they're content. So mindfulness is a very rival brain activity to the, the brain activity of dissociation. Dissociation is designed to not know to not feel, to not put the pieces together, to not um, comprehend, to not sense. 
So it's an anesthetic. It's a, it's a purposeful not knowing. And this makes sense when you're like caught and inside a tiger's mouth or you're a small child and you've been left um, if your parents have died or the, the opportunity to shut things down waiting for somebody to come and save you or predators will often drop their prey while they go to get their children. Dissociation is that what we use when we're that playing dead and in that tiger's mouth. And being aware of things in that moment is going to kill you quicker. And so there is this strong, strong um, pull inside a mind to not be mindful when you're dissociating. And for those folks who dissociate all the time, I think it, it's really important for, you, for people to understand how unbearably painful it is to be like this all the time. Being alone for children is painful. That little baby body registers as that physical and emotional pain and they get registered in the same place. So when we introduce mindfulness, we're starting to open up these painful things without giving anybody scaffolding or, or safety nets on how to handle their feelings, how to handle that sensations, how to be aware of the information that their bodies really don't want to know. Right. So let yeah. me ask you, so I teach mindfulness, I teach meditation, I do groups of a thousand, I do, you know, and I'll have them close their eyes and concentrate on their breath. I'll have them do a mini meditation. What's the answer to that then? Um, because that's so, like the, the main thing of what I teach. So how in a group of 1200 people do I go into, hey, now we're going to do a mini meditation safely in case there's one or two people in the audience. Do they just not, do they just kind of feel that and go, okay, I'm not doing it or. Yeah, like, like I would actually make that invitation at the beginning because they really like, like if somebody um mindfulness actually like, like there's a lot of people who will go for a mindful retreat like the, the week-long or 10-day silent retreats and they ha can have such a bad psychotic break that they actually forget things like what a toothbrush is because the system has gone on such intense shutdown like it, it actually really it can make other people go psychotic it can actually really hurt people who have who are really traumatized as kids um so what I recommend sometimes is instead of like, cause a lot of people, if they close their eyes, even all the stuff starts coming up. So I sometimes invite them to be, did I lose you guys? Did I freeze? No, you're good. You're okay. Good. So, so sometimes I'll invite them to do just a soft gaze instead of closing their eyes. Um, sometimes I just get them to focus, like put their hand on their, the prosterous muscle, which is right that divot between the forehead and the nose. And what that does is it gently turns on or starts to gently regulate the brain structures of the ventral medial prefrontal cortex and the default mode network, right? And I don't know if you can notice, but if you touch that spot, it can or it does sort of gently start to loosen muscles. It's pretty subtle, but for people with dissociation, you gotta think this is a system that's got the brakes on and it doesn't wanna move and it, it doesn't wanna think and it doesn't wanna be or act or feel alive. Doing this is enough for them. Yeah. Um, so what percentage yeah. of the population are we talking? We're talking probably about 15% of the population. Really? It's not an insignificant, it's not an uncommon. Oh, yeah, that's a big number. It is a big number. Um, and I'm including most and all dissociative disorders. So people with the more um, intense dissociative disorders, the DIDs or the, the edgy of the unspecified or otherwise specified, we're talking three to 5% of the population. It is as common or more common than schizophrenia. Yeah. 
Um, it's highly, highly, highly connected to early attachment disruptions. Mm -hmm. So lots of people can have this and not really know that they have it. Yeah. Because early childhood attachment disruptions are common. Like it, it can actually happen. I don't know if you're familiar with the Ferber method or the sleep oh, yeah. training. That can actually create somebody to have a dissociative disorder their whole entire life. Really? Yeah. Yeah. There, I can't remember. It was, I can't, there's something about, they were trying to ferberize their baby. I can't remember if that was a, a, a TV show where there was like one set of parents that were really into, no, you go get the baby. And the other set was like, no, we're ferberizing them. And that was the whole joke of the episode was yeah. you're just leaving this kid to scream and cry all night long. I don't have children, so I don't ferber anything, but um, it's, it's so, this, this conversation is so fascinating for me because literally just the other day, I heard someone talk about how horrible mindfulness was and I'm going, no, that's like, that's what I do, you know? So uh, having that sort of disclaimer at the front of if this becomes uncomfortable for you or I, I've worked one-on-one -on -one with clients where I've done like visualization tape and tapes, I'm dating myself, yeah. uh, you know, MP3s and stuff for them where they say, I'll tell you right now, concentrating on my breathing is anxious producing for me. Yeah. So can do something other than concentrating on my breathing. So I've actually mentioned that in groups of people yeah. um, that if, you know, concentrating on your breathing makes you so aware of it, it freaks you out that don't do that. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and that, so that to me would be an indication that that person is probably dealing with a fair amount of trauma memories or trauma experiences. Right. So it's, it's experience after experience after experience that they don't know how to resolve, yeah. how to care for. They treat it as it was treated. So, so yeah. we learn through what our parents do to us, not what they say to us, what they do mm -hmm. to us. And so if you have an upset and it's, it's denied, then you learn to deny that upset. If you have a, a pain inside that is shamed, you will shame that pain. If you have um, an experience inside that's scary and that scary is manipulated, you're going to start sort of being really manipulative or hurtful to that pain and suffering. We do what is done to us. It's almost everybody who has those internal voices inside of shame. Shame is another really good indication. If you have a lot of it, that, that there's probably an attachment disruption and there likely could be dissociation and mindfulness might be really hard for you. When I start working with people with mindfulness, I really actually suggest that they focus on their face and head, not the breath and body. Mm -hmm. So I might suggest to them if they take a breath in to fill up their sinus cavities with a colored air. And it sort of seems if they're, if they're imagining the colored air that sort of takes the edge off. And also if they're focusing on their face, they're, they're activating that men, the medial prefrontal cortex or the ventral medial prefrontal cortex. And it, it just sort of starts to exercise these, these muscles. And I might invite them to do two, a breath, like one breath, two breaths, and that's it. Yeah. So that we sort of wake up that structure. But a lot of the times I, I really start with um, the after image of perhaps a candle flame or glow sticks, because some people are really triggered by glow sticks. Or I mean by candle flames. So you, you, if you get them to look at the flame, you can get an app on your phone that, that has a, a candle app. Yep. and look at it, close your eyes and see the after image. That seems to be enough to help people begin to focus and concentrate on that part. And what it does is it exercises that brain structure without making people body aware. Yeah. So that that brain structure can get sort of the muscles enough to start moving back to regulate because that's what this brain structure is designed to do. Its job is to regulate us. Right. And so um, the more you exercise it, the more it gets regulated.
Yeah, and so it's kind of sneaking in the back. Jason's, Jason's thinking he goes. I'm like, Whoa! right? So, so, so both of you are much more technically competent on this this area than I am. So, I wanted to kind of just kind of summarize back a little bit, right? Yeah. To, to, to make sure that I'm I'm understanding this and maybe kind of make it a little practical for people that don't have as much of of the technical background. Yeah, right? yeah is is because again i mean i've focused on mindful practices encourage people to use those right because again for the 85 percent of the population that don't have the trauma it's a good thing to do well <laughs> and, 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 i would say that I, saying that 85 percent of a population isn't traumatized isn't probably not accurate. well okay I, i'm i'm going i'm going off of the 15 I, i'm I, i'm yeah. talking we all have trauma <laughs> we all have trauma i, I I would say 15% is severe. Yeah. And then I would say probably there's probably another, I would say maybe 5% of the population is lucky enough to not have any trauma. Okay. I think most people are living with transgenerational and, and you can't go far back with parents who weren't in wars where there wasn't yeah. genocide, yeah. Da, 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 racism, sexism, misogyny, patriarchy, it's everywhere. Well, frankly, so, dro dropping your kid off at kindergarten is traumatizing can be uh, you know so it's like it depends not on... getting picked up after kindergarten kindergarten is very yeah. traumatizing jason's having yeah. A... yeah right no, <laughs> so, like, no. yeah so i think i think it's it's okay sorry to interrupt you but like just you know for the for people if they don't really realize or think that they've had a lot of trauma and they're having challenges with mindfulness i think i think it's time we normalize that and we when we you know sort of let them know that that's actually a normal thing to happen that that you're not at fault because you can't do mindfulness something is going on that's trying to protect you from what mindfulness may do for you in a state of emergency well and that's why because where i was where i was kind of going or thinking about and and maybe you can confirm this for me is you know like you said it's it's not everything is right for everyone and, and we all have our own paths. We all have different levels of trauma in our life, but especially, you know, the higher up you are on that scale, probably that it's, you know, if, if you're finding that you're having difficulty, like you said, it's not your fault, right? But you just need to go about it maybe a little bit different way, right? You need to focus on trying to remove some of that trauma at first, focus there first, because right? I mean, it, it's, well, you can start with, you can, it, that's a, that's a challenging thing because like sort of, it's one of those things that once the bell is rung, the bell is rung, like being traumatized is it's done. What, what we're trying to teach people is how to do the global act of self-care mm -hmm. after the trauma. Um, for a lot of times we really focused on the event and um, even in therapeutic modalities, we went, you know, if you discover the event, you talk about the event, that'll be good enough. So then that makes the assumption that logic and reason is our number one highest priority, which it isn't because mm -hmm. most people are not logical, even if they think they're logical and they're not reasonable when they think that they're reasonable uh, because we are a sensing feeling creature. And so it's, it's, it's sort of, you know, learning how to do these small things in bite-sized pieces that gives you some relief. And that's that's sort of that felt feeling of relief, that felt feeling of taking that breath off. And, and that pace of going slow 
tends to be quicker for really traumatized sensitive systems. And there's lots of other reasons why we can have sensitive systems. Autism comes in here. Um, lots of other sensitive systems can come in here. Yeah. Well, and I love what you said about the normalization, right? Because that's, that's what is so missing, right? Especially kind of from a psychological perspective. I mean, physically, if I'm losing, if I don't have a leg, nobody's going to go, come on, Jason, let's go run a marathon together, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we, we don't see some of the psychological things. And so again, that, that, that awareness to it and the normalization that, hey, you know what, you're not a freak. No, there's no. lots of people that that are like this. And, and I love that idea of the self care, right? Because I think that's those those little steps. I mean, don't, you know, if you're somebody again, who's having trouble with mindfulness, and you're thinking I'm I'm a weirdo, I can't do this, just focus on the self care side of it. Yeah. And, and the you little know. the little progress that you make every day. And that's, oh. that's what's important, right? For a lot of people, sometimes it's, it, do I feel okay in my big toe? Okay, I can focus on feeling okay in my big toe. And then you expand upon that. Or like I said, I spend a lot of time up and growing imagery up in that front part of the nose or front part of the face. So we'll start with candle flames when they can hold it there long enough, then we'll move to a simple image. And then I move to a more complex image. And then I move into more complex um, guided imagery. And when I'm doing that, about that time, that's when I'll stop dropping into the body and start bringing colors into the body, start bringing sensations. Because I'm also um, like a certified sensory motor psychotherapist. So I am a very body-based type of therapist. And, and I really follow that sensory felt feeling affective um, beginnings because those are pretty hardwired and they, mm -hmm. they can't be, they're, they're too primitive to lie. And they're too automatic and, and neurobiologically driven to be um, false or faked. A lot of people can hide them and dismiss them and misplace them and mislabel them and do all sorts of things with things we call emotions. But emotions really what they're, they're coming from affect. And affect is our system of asking others, can you please help me? That's all emotions are there for is our first line of communication. And, uh, you know, we live in a world that really vilifies emotion, it, you know, sort of sees the tearing and the crying as weakness, when it's actually an incredible strength. Yeah. And that's just, you know, six to 10,000 years of misogyny and patriarchy that have got us here that, that sort of normalize something that's not a very normal way for humans to be. And that's what I was just thinking. That's another thing that we've got to normalize. Right. Well, we already have, you know, you look at the man code, right? Sort of boys are raised to be distant, to be independent, to be unemotional, to be, um, you know, sort of professional and businesslike. And, and, you know, if you, if you sort of remove some of that and you describe, that's basically what a psychopath is. Yeah. What? Well, and it's, it's Executives and corporations, psychopaths? <laughs> I haven't been talking. Uh, or they're politicians. Or yeah. um, <laughs> high up. You know, you, you have a lot of, you can have uh, narcissists in psychiatry, you can have narcissists in psychology, you almost anything that really is power driven, status driven, you're going to find them there in the law, you're going to find it in police. Because most people who are pretty content are just going about their lives and they're, they're, they're actually quite boring, but they're, <laughs> they're quite content and happy yeah. with what they do with their families and, and just right you know, going about their day and just being really quite happy. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, we are, of course, out of time because that's what happens. Um, but I was just going to say we're talking about men and emotions. I just my uh, my boyfriend just had his birthday. Um, he's younger than I am, so most of his friend group is also younger. And I put together a birthday video for him where I had everybody just simply jump on and say happy birthday. And yeah. the outpouring of emotion yeah. from his male friends where they literally was like, I love you, man. And you're my best friend. And I just, I mean, there's so many guys almost got teary and said, I love you. And I'm watching this going, this is the best thing ever because I'm seeing this sort of new generation of men who are loving and cuddly and more sensitive and are okay with their feelings. And, you know, I think my boyfriend's more sensitive than me. I mean, like he, he gets so touched by things. We know neurobiologically that little boys, their empathy is a little bit more attuned at birth than little girls. Mm. We also know that we've done, uh, there's a man named Edtronic who does studies with, with uh, boys and girls. He does this thing called a still face experiment where the, the mom goes still and the baby starts to reach out almost instantly. And little boys are reaching out for their parents. Uh, like these are six month old babies mm-hmm. a little bit faster. So that they don't have the same um, sort of regulation skills that female babies tend to have um at birth uh, we're not talking about a huge amount of time we're talking about like maybe five to ten seconds kind of time but little girls seem to be able to sort of keep themselves okay for a little bit little boys are not little boys are so much more sensitive to neglect than than it seems like females are and the boys are getting hugely neglected so like misogyny and patriarchy does as much damage to men as it does to women yeah Oh, yeah, I love this conversation. Okay, let's just we're gonna chat all day. No, <laughs> I love this. But course- off, my 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 new love is now looking. I'm actually writing a fiction book about what life would have been like 25,000 years ago when there was none of this stuff. Mm. We could dream. Yeah. Um. Yeah. This was this has been a phenomenal conversation. Uh, share with everybody where they can reach you. Uh, website, all that good stuff. Um, I can be found at uh, www.associatedcounseling. There's two L's in Canada counseling. Um, I can also be found uh, on Facebook with Associated Counseling. Um, I'm also on uh, Twitter with Associated Counseling. And it's pretty easy. If you Google Christine and dissociation, it'll come up. Um, I have written a book called uh, dissociation, mindfulness, and creative meditations, how to facilitate growth. So that's on Amazon. It's easy to find. It, it goes through a lot of, I describe what the front brain is, what dissociation is. And then I sort of give instructions at the last chapter on how to do that. Um, there's also a couple of journal articles I have that are um, open access as well. So if you Google Christine Forner, you'll find a lot of that stuff. Awesome. Oh, I had some fun with it. <laughs> I know I, I learned a lot today. This was, yeah. this has been great for me too. And, and it's, um, especially as a man, you know, cause I, I totally, uh, see what you're saying, Kathy, too, that younger men, um, there, there's something different about their energy. Luckily, maybe some of the patriarchy is, is not getting through to them. Some of us that are older, <laughs> we still got indoctrinated with all that bullshit. Right. And so, so yeah. there's still yeah. some things that we have to, we have to work through, but, you know, I really appreciated, yeah. you know, what you went through today and the fact that we all have some trauma as well. Oh, so, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. We are a traumatized world, normalizing trauma. Yeah. Cause we are, um, you know what I found that was beautiful. There's a picture of Biden yesterday where he's hugging the son of somebody who was shot in Sandy Brook, I think. Oh. 
he was um, a, a young fellow with Down syndrome. And you just see Biden just instantly hug this kid and reassure him. And it was just this outpouring of empathy. And it was on Twitter and everybody's like, look how amazing this is, look how amazing it is. And I'm like, that would have been seen as weakness 30 years ago. Yeah. That would have gotten him out of the vote 30 years ago. And it's beautiful that people are now like, no, that's what we need in a leader. And it's like, yes, that's actually yeah. what we do need in leaders. We need empathetic leaders. Well, so. except you have half the pop, not half, but you have a giant part of the population that still thinks that's weakness. And this is why we're in the problem that we're in right now. You know, that's it. We could talk <laughs> we're about normalizing that. though. We're normalizing people. Oh, we're getting it out there. Crazy, crazy, crazy. <laughs> yeah, All right. <laughs> yeah. All right, everybody. I know this is going to air after, but go out and vote. <laughs> I know this is going to air way after the election. But anyway, um, this has been an amazing conversation, Christine. Thank you so much. I'm gonna I'm gonna chew on this all day, and I've got to get your book because I nerd out on psychology and all this stuff. So this will be great. Um, I'm Kathy Groover. I can be reached at kathygroover.com. And I'm Jason Mefford. I can be reached at jasonmefford.com. So go out, have a great rest of your day, everybody, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Fire and Earth Podcast. See ya. Bye.